As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On July 25, 2004, a suspected murderer entered a small gas station in North Yorkshire, England. As he browsed the store, the owner of the station recognized him. This man was wanted for the murder of four people and had been on the run for a week. Quickly, the owner called the police, and the man was finally apprehended soon after. The nationwide manhunt for this killer was over. When he's approached by the police, he's arrogant, vain, his ego in full play. He says, I'm a murderer, aren't I? Two weeks prior, this self-proclaimed murderer had brutally killed his girlfriend, Claire, and a week later, her twin sister, Diane, He was fueled by drugs, alcohol, and the need for sexual gratification. She was tortured, she was cut with razors, with scissors. Those sort of injuries are sometimes the most upsetting because you can imagine what they'd feel like. After murdering the twins, he senselessly killed an elderly couple, James and Joan Britton. He apparently wasn't able to even recall murdering the Britons. Despite the supposed memory loss, investigators were certain they had the killer of all four people. Every piece of evidence which linked him to the killing of the two girls and of the Britons was in place. His trial would conclude the following year with a groundbreaking sentence, ensuring that he would never be a free man again. Nobody had ever been given a whole life order before when they'd actually confessed and they'd pled guilty to murder. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Mark Hobson. Mark Richard Hobson was born on September 2, 1969, in Wakefield, England. Hobson was raised by his parents alongside his two sisters. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and journalist Jeffrey Wansell believe there was nothing significant from Hobson's upbringing that could have contributed to his violent actions later in life. 
He comes from this traditional nuclear family, uh, very much working class. His dad's a coal miner, his mum's a machinist. That there doesn't appear to be any of that significant trauma or abuse or neglect that we often see in the backgrounds of killers. On the surface, Mark Hobson had a perfectly ordinary, in fact, rather respectable childhood and youth. To all the world and to all his schoolmates and friends, he was simply Mark. Nice enough lad, nice enough young man. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber adds more. When we look at Hobson, at first his life looks completely normal. He appears to have a normal family. There doesn't seem to be any indications of abuse, nor any indications of trauma from sources outside of the family. While his home life was ordinary, when Hobson was 16, he showed the first warning sign that something sinister was growing within. Local journalist Mike Laycock, who has extensively researched Hobson's story, recounts the incident. He left Selby High School and got a job uh, in a butcher's shop in Galthorpe. He was quite shy and seemed quite quiet. But after about three weeks, he lost his temper uh, with a colleague at the shop and uh, threatened to stab him with a boning knife. And the colleague was, was terrified, so he was sacked. With no prior history of violence, Hobson's outburst was treated as an isolated incident. Life went back to normal. And five years later, 21-year-old Hobson moved in with his childhood sweetheart. Mark Hobson is in his early 20s. And they form a family together. So he has two stepchildren and he has a daughter of his own. And they appear to be a normal family unit. In 1994, two years after the birth of their daughter, the couple got married. Their relationship was that of an average couple, and Hobson had built a foundation for a happy and fulfilling life. She was later to refer to Mark as almost a perfect husband. Did everything right, worked hard. He was at that point working in the Drax power station as well as doing some landscape gardening. There was nothing to indicate at all that Mark Hobson would turn into a killer. In fact, rather the opposite. He seemed an upright family man, one child of his own, two stepchildren. But three and a half years into the marriage and without any warning, Hobson ended the relationship. Mark Hobson literally walks out, says, I can't do this anymore, I'm leaving, and, and literally just ups and goes. Now, there is a brief reconciliation, but, but this doesn't last for very long because Hobson has changed quite a lot. He started to drink quite heavily, and she doesn't want him around the children. So literally, overnight, things have changed. Hobson's divorce was the beginning of his rapid downward spiral. Hobson's life did start unraveling. He hasn't got that structure anymore. I think that that structure and that routine was something that was quite important to him. He really is off the rails. He left the power station and went to work as a nightclub bouncer, doorman, in Selby in Yorkshire. And in my mind, it was the move to becoming a nightclub bouncer that was to send Hobson completely off the rails. For the first time in his life, he came into contact with industrial quantities of drugs, be it ecstasy, cannabis, cocaine, and he also started for the first time in his life to drink, and not just to drink a little, but to drink. It was clear to those around him that Hobson's addiction to drug and alcohol were having an impact on his personality. 
he was uh, developing a rather of Jekyll and Hyde personality. Um, he could be laughing and joking one moment, and the next minute he could be flying into a terrible temper, a, real, a really bad rage. Alcohol reduces inhibitions. What does that mean? It's the most dangerous drug in the world to be taken by somebody who has a murderous impulse waiting to bubble up because alcohol reaches into the frontal cortex, removes the self-control. And so while alcoholism doesn't make somebody murderous, it can en enable the murderous part of a person's soul to emerge. In 2002, 32-year-old Mark Hobson was outside a liquor store in Selby when he completely lost control. After a disagreement about a woman, Hobson viciously attacked a former friend with a knife. He stabbed the man in front of several terrified shoppers. He attacked somebody who was supposedly one of his friends. He, he stabbed this man five times, and it's been said that he was, he was something of a love rival. But this is a wholly disproportionate reaction to, to somebody looking at your girlfriend or, or muscling in on your territory. Now that's not small, that's not mild. It is a wild overreaction, no matter how, how they may have fallen out or over what. Nevertheless, it was a very sustained and brutal attack. The former friend and father of two was left fighting for his life. He was rushed to the hospital where they performed emergency surgery. Miraculously, the man survived. Hobson was arrested. He admitted to wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. In February 2003, at Leeds Crown Court in Yorkshire, 33-year-old Mark Hobson pleaded guilty to unlawfully wounding an old friend. Journalist Mike Laycock recalls the incident. He'd stabbed a man in the streets in Selby called Galthorpe. This man had been left in intensive care, he got a punctured lung. It could easily have been a murder. At the time, Hobson was considered a low risk to the public. Rather than imprisonment, Hobson received community service and was released. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley say the court should have taken the threat of violence more seriously. To this day, I will not understand how it happened. He did not receive any kind of a custodial sentence. He was simply given 100 hours of community service. This was an opportunity to intervene, to put the brakes on his behaviour, and it was, was one that was completely missed. And one of the other consequences was that he hasn't been forced to address or tackle his behaviour. In 2004, it appeared that Hobson was working to get his life back together. He took a job as a garbage man and began a relationship with 27-year-old Claire Sanderson. In April of that year, Mark and Claire moved into an apartment in the village of Campbellsforth. The relationship, though, was a tumultuous one. She was somebody who was quite vulnerable. She'd suffered from anorexia. Um, she had some issues with, with drinking, with alcohol. And I think he, he sensed this vulnerability, to be honest. And if you look back at people's recollections of their relationship, it was an abusive one. It was a toxic one. Hobson continued to feed his addictions and his vicious temper resurfaced. He was seen as a, quite a violent man in the community, as a bit of a hard man, and somebody who would uh, get into alcohol-fueled brawls, and you suspect that there was some poor treatment of Claire. There was an incident in 2003 where people recalled him dragging her from one side of the pub to the other by her hair and punching her in the face. This was an abusive relationship. It was quite visibly violent. 
The couple's violent public exchanges escalated, and the Campbellsforth locals took notice. They both drank heavily, there's no question about that, and got into a great many fights. At one point, she was christened Eight Ball because she was always black and blue, and he hit her so regularly. But equally, when Hobson went to visit his ex-wife at one point, he too was covered with bite marks. So this was not exactly a calm relationship. It was really quite brutal. And no one can say that Hobson wasn't, by this point, a violent man. Many believe that Hobson's outbursts with Claire were fueled not by problems in their relationship, but by his obsession with her twin sister, Diane. He had boasted to a fellow refuse collector that he'd picked the wrong sister, that he should really have chosen a relationship with Diane and not with Claire. Perhaps he just got bored with Claire. But the dreadful truth was that Claire was to pay with her life for Hobson's change of affection. Eventually, Hobson's fixation on Diane became uncontrollable, and he devised a way to get Claire out of the picture. He'd made himself a to-do list. Things I must do to get rid of Claire and to have Diane. At one point, he'd said, buy bin bags and ties and disinfectant and bleach, all sorts of things he knew he might need if he fulfilled his plan to kill Claire. And it was, in many ways, a very elaborate plan. On July 11, 2004, Mark Hobson and Claire were spotted leaving the Comus Inn in Campbellsforth. It would be the last time Claire was seen alive. When the couple returned to their apartment, Hobson sprang into action. He had basically decided that he didn't want her around anymore. He developed a fixation with her sister. She was simply an obstacle that he wanted to get out of the way. With Claire, he struck her on the head with the hammer 17 times. That would, at the very least, render her unconscious, probably would have proved to be fatal in any case, but he also strangled her. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton was training at the time of the murders. He saw the victims' bodies firsthand. The Hobson case was probably one of the first relatively high-profile uh, multiple murders that I saw in my career. Uh, it does stick with you. It was an utterly ruthless killing, no doubt fueled by considerable quantities of alcohol. After murdering Claire, Hobson used supplies he had previously bought to conceal her body. He dragged Claire up the stairs of their apartment and wrapped her body in garbage bags. So it's very much a case of out of sight, out of mind. He used some bleach to clean up one of the areas in the flat because I think he might have been bothered by there being some kind of stain, some kind of smell there. But he stays in the flat with her body. Her body is decomposing. This is the summer months. This is going to be most unpleasant. But, but he simply doesn't care about that. As Claire's decomposing body remained hidden away in the apartment, Hobson moved on to phase two of his plan. Diane. Diane was Claire's twin sister, 
And Hobson had developed a bit of a fixation with her. He'd actually said to a work colleague, I'm going to have her. Now that phrase is very revealing for me. That shows for me that Hobson is somebody who looks at women as things to be owned, things to be possessed, not human beings with, with rights and feelings. He's quite misogynistic and he's, he's got himself set on this idea that he's gonna have Diane. The attack on Claire almost pales into insignificance behind the attack on her twin sister, Diane. In order to get her to the apartment, Mark contacted Diane and told her that Claire was sick. He told her Claire wanted to see her sister, and Diane agreed to come over. It was, of course, a pretense, no more than a bait to get the object of his attentions into his hands. On the evening of July 17, 2004, Diane told her parents she was going to visit Claire before meeting up with her boyfriend at a pub. She was last seen leaving her home to head over to her sister's. She couldn't have predicted is that she fell into the hands of the man who'd already murdered her twin sister. Now, there's no doubt whatever that the objective here was an entirely sexual one. There'd been no sexual attack on Claire, but there was a very distinct sexual motive in Diane's killing, and the details of it almost defy description. As soon as Diane went in the apartment, Hobson attacked. She was tortured, she was cut with razors, with scissors. Those sort of injuries are sometimes the most upsetting because you can imagine what they'd feel like. A fatal stab wound to the heart, most people can't imagine how that would feel to be cut on the arm with a razor. You can empathize with what that would feel like. She must have been absolutely terrified, you know, really fearful of what was going on and, and doing everything she possibly could to try and save her own life. But, but he wanted to own her, he wanted to possess her. He had her in that flat and he was going to do whatever he wanted with her. But Hobson wanted more than just sexual gratification. So while Claire was murdered, Diane is tortured and assaulted and murdered. It seems almost like she's more the focus of what he wants to do. Claire just needed to be taken out of the picture. I think that the attack on Diane was so much more aggressive because this was Hobson's target. This was what he wanted. He probably fantasized, he probably ruminated over this for quite a considerable period of time. Claire was simply the obstacle to get out of the way and I think he saw Diane as the prize. Hobson beat Diane with the same hammer he used to murder Claire. He then strangled and suffocated Diane. The thing about these sorts of assaults is that they are physically difficult to do. It is not a quick, sudden spur of the moment thing. It takes effort. Even if someone were simply angry, there's time there to realize what you're doing and to stop. But Hobson carried on. They were treated appallingly. And that kind of brutality, that kind of callousness, that kind of depravity leaves me speechless. Claire's body had already been decomposing upstairs for a week. Now, there were two bodies in the house. The smell of decomposition is incredibly distinctive. It is very strong. 
it's not the sort of thing that you could easily cover just with an air freshener or some simple method. The smell would grow over time as the body decomposes and it will often leak out of houses. It can be smelt in the street. It is biologically designed for you to realize that something is not safe to be around. The smell didn't seem to bother Hobson. He'd been going about business as usual. But after killing Diane, Hobson realized he needed to cover his tracks. Diane was expected to meet her boyfriend that evening, and when she didn't show up, the boyfriend became concerned. She hasn't appeared, so he rings her mobile phone. Hobson answers. Where's uh, Diane? Oh, oh, she and Claire have gone round to uh, their father's because he's had a heart attack. Absolute, complete invention. But clever. Hobson doesn't stop there. He says, but I must come and talk to you. So Hobson, leaving the bodies of the two sisters in the flat, goes to the pub and meets Diane's boyfriend, and they proceed to get drunk together. And Hobson then invites him back to the flat. Now, this for me is, is a really, really significant moment in this case, because I think Hobson's actually quite enjoying this. He knows what's going on. He knows exactly where Claire and Diane are. They are in that flat. Now, I can only imagine the boyfriend, by this point, was pretty drunk. No matter, he agrees. Goes back to the flat with Hobson. When Diane's boyfriend entered the apartment, he was immediately hit with the smell of decomposition. However, he was unable to identify the stench. He actually comments on, on the smell. He says, it, 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 there's a really nasty smell in here. And Hobson said, oh, that's, that's the drains. They've been playing up for a while. Hobson tries to persuade the boyfriend to spend the night on the sofa. Oh, don't bother to go home. You know, it's late, what, nearly one. He lies down on the sofa, only to discover blood. He gets off the sofa and says to Hobson, what's this? Oh, uh, Hobson says, nothing if not a quick liar. Oh, uh, Claire had a few women's problems. There's nothing to worry about. Not wanting to spend the night in Hobson's apartment, Diane's boyfriend made his excuses and headed home. I think the fact that Hobson invited the boyfriend back to the flat is incredibly revealing. That There was absolutely no purpose for, for doing that other than feeling very powerful, feeling very important, feeling incredibly in control and proud of what he'd done. Had he not gone home, I'm sure the boyfriend would have paid with his life that night. But the fact he did go home saved his life. In the early hours of the morning, Fearing that Diane's boyfriend was suspicious of him, Hobson decided to flee. He left Campbellsforth with just the clothes on his back and a kitchen knife. After the boyfriend's gone home and in the depths of night, Hobson persuades his mother to drive him to York, to the hospital. He tells her that the twins have been in a car accident and that they are in York Hospital, another complete fabrication. Now, during this car journey, he, he looks quite agitated, he looks quite concerned, but his mum takes him and, and leaves him at the hospital. As his mother drove home, CCTV footage caught Hobson at the hospital around 2.40 a.m. Meanwhile, later in the morning, Diane's boyfriend was growing more and more concerned. 
He still hadn't heard from Diane about her father's supposed heart attack the night prior. Diane's boyfriend went to her parents' house, hoping to find her there. He knocked on the door and was shocked when he came face to face with Diane's father, looking completely healthy. The two men quickly realized that Hobson had spun an elaborate tale and that both the twin sisters were missing. Wasting no time, the men headed straight to Hobson's apartment, unaware of the horrors within. At about eight o'clock in the morning of Sunday, the 18th of July, one week after Claire has been killed, Diane's boyfriend and the twins' father arrive at the flat to a scene that not only had Hobson treated them, his two victims, like disposable rubbish, he'd also mutilated them. Hobson had left their bodies there in the flat, so not only had he murdered them, then he'd just fled the scene afterwards with absolutely no regard to the impact of that event on the, the people who were closest to his victims. As police were arriving at his apartment, Hobson was on the move. He went to the village of Strensel, approximately 20 miles away from his home in Campbellsforth, and he was about to commit another senseless act of violence. Perhaps he was on some kind of spree at this point, you know, I'm, I know I've done it, I can get away with it, and what's more, I'm going to do it again, a kind of version of a spree killer, but not with a sniper rifle or a, a gun, but a man who likes to kill close up and personal with a knife. On the run and in desperate need of food and shelter, Hobson broke into the home of an elderly couple, James and Joan Britton. James is a former Spitfire pilot from the Second World War. James has got some form of Parkinson's and is very deaf. Joan, unfortunately, can't really walk very well and is pretty blind. Hobson brutally attacked the Britons and stabbed them both to death. Knives are designed to cut through objects, and so they are quite effective tools if you wish to injure another person. But in Joan Britton's case, she was stabbed with such force that the tip of the knife stuck in bone and broke off. That is way in excess of the force that you'd need to use simply to stab somebody. It is at the severe end of what we see. Suspecting something was wrong, neighbors of the Britons called the police, and their bodies were discovered shortly after the murders. Once in the house, officers were met with a shocking sight. They found the body of Jim Britton laying in the sitting room and Joan Britton's in the hallway. In Strensel, the biggest thing they had to deal with was teenagers hanging around on street corners, suddenly uh, confronted with the fact that two people in the village, two elderly, frail pensioners, had been murdered. So there's a real sense of shock in villages like Strensel. There is definitely a sense in which Hobson was preying on the vulnerable when he killed the Britons. So Mr. Britton was elderly, was infirm, and he beat him with his own walking stick several times, many more times than he needed to do to get somebody out of the way so he could escape from the house. He didn't need to kill this man. He stabbed him. This was something that was, was really, really unnecessary. While police investigated the Britons' murder, a manhunt was already underway in Shelby, Yorkshire, searching for the twins' killer. Little did police know, he had already struck again. 
Paul Worsley, QC, who led the prosecution team against Hobson, says investigators had no doubt who they were looking for. The police obviously were looking for Hobson after the boyfriend of Diane alerted them to the fact that he and indeed uh, Diane and Claire's father had gone round and found the bodies. So then there was a manhunt for Hobson. He was the obvious suspect. The lists there, the items that he bought, the fact he was in his flat and that he disappeared all inevitably pointed to him. That evening, police released the story to a local paper, the Evening Press. Quite early on, uh, from the Monday, the day after the murders, the police were already revealing that they had a suspect in mind. They said it was Mark Hobson. They named him initially as the suspect and the person they wanted to speak to in connection with the murders of Diane and Claire. In seven days, Hobson had savagely murdered four people. But at first, police didn't connect the murders. At that stage, they weren't sure that the murders of the Joan and James Britton was committed by the same person, although there were strong reasons to believe that it was. It would be extraordinary if it wasn't, but they couldn't be sure at first. With Hobson still at large, North Yorkshire police released a picture to the press. So quite early on, uh, descriptions are issued, photographs are issued. The police were really keen to get the message out there. This is the person they wanted to, to find. They wanted the picture out there, the image of Mark Hobson out there, so that anybody in the member of the public who saw him would be able to come forward and tell the police where he was. News of the killings quickly spread, and sightings of Hobson were reported in Strensel, where the Britons were murdered. As the week went on, evidence emerged that did tie in the two sets of murders, and it became clear there was one person they were looking for, and that was Mark Hobson. The fact he was in his flat and that he disappeared all inevitably pointed to him. And then when there was an unexplained killing for what appeared to be no reason at all, 25 miles away, then the police put two and two together and said, we've got one man who is out on the rampage and a very dangerous man indeed. It had been four days since the elderly couple had been killed, but Hobson was nowhere to be found. To get him to come forward, police broadcasted a recording of Hobson's mother asking him to give himself up. Still, there was no sign of the killer, and fear was spreading through the community. For a whole week, there was a strange, surreal sense, um, particularly in Strensel and Campbellsforth, but also in the whole of the York area, that this man was on the run, possibly still in the area, living rough, and uh, people were concerned that they could be next. On July 25th, 2004, the manhunt was still underway to catch 34-year-old Mark Hobson. Hobson had killed four people in one week, including his girlfriend, Claire, and her twin sister, Diane. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes by this time, Hobson was desperate. He knows that it's all going to unravel, and he's really, really trying to, to pull something together and make sure that he gets away with it. Journalist Mike Laycock reported on the case and remembers the days of the manhunt. Well, Hobson had been on the run for a whole week, and the police mounted an extraordinarily large operation to try and find him. There were daily press conferences on television screens across the country, I think around the world. The police said, do not under any circumstances approach this man, he's dangerous. Call us if you see him. For a week, Hobson avoided capture and was believed to be hiding in the North Yorkshire area. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell says locals were alarmed as more details were revealed about the killings. The community in York and surrounding areas was obviously terrified. He was a man who had already killed two people twice, 
and clearly was capable of killing it at will and for no particular reason. The desperation of the community for there to be an arrest and for this man to be stopped was extreme. This is North Yorkshire. This is not the mean city streets. This is not the kind of place where this happens. Hobson wasn't even an outsider. He was actually from this community. He came from the Yorkshire area. So this was one of their own, and I think that, that makes it even more traumatic. And it turns out their fears were justified. Hobson had more plans for murder. He actually had a list of people that he was intending to kill. He had a list of items that he would need to actually carry out those murders. The police found at his home address a list with the name of other people uh, who appeared to be potential victims. The parents of Diane and Claire, and indeed the parents of his ex-wife. This was somebody who was not snapping, who was not out of control. This was very well thought through. After seven days on the run, Hobson came out of hiding in the village of Shipton by Benningborough. And unbeknownst to the killer, he had been recognized. One week after, the bodies of Claire and Diana are discovered, the bodies of Jim and Joan Britton are discovered. One week later, that he is finally spotted in a garage not far away from York. Hobson was finally tracked down when he went into a petrol station to buy a few items, and the attendant in there recognised him from a photo that had been made public in a police appeal. So within 20 minutes, huge number of police officers descended on the scene, armed police officers, um, knowing that he was somewhere in the vicinity, um, and, a, and the manhunt really intensified, uh, and he was found not long afterwards. After a week of searching, Mark Hobson was finally arrested on July 25, 2004. His hideout was discovered just eight feet from the main road. He had concealed himself in a gap between a thorn bush and a septic tank behind an upholstery shop. And he was clearly in a disheveled state. He was, looked very tired. He was quite recognizably the person that had been on the, the wanted posters that had been around for the previous week. Once in custody, Hobson showed no remorse for the crimes he had committed. When Hobson was arrested, he tells the officers, well, I'm a fucking murderer, aren't I? And I think this is, this is really, really interesting because he, he knows exactly what he's done. This isn't somebody who is denying responsibility. He's, he's fessing up straight away. Investigators questioned him about the murders, but when asked about the Britons, he claimed to have no memory of the incident. Well, Hobson claimed that he lost a day and a half when he murdered the Britons, the elderly couple. Hobson claimed that he was drunk when he committed these murders. He essentially blamed them on alcohol. There is no doubt in my mind, whatever, that if Hobson had not been caught on that Sunday, he'd have killed again and probably several more times. One of those killers who, once the psychotic break had come, would only be stopped when someone stopped him. And that someone, of course, was the police. On April 18, 2005, Mark Hobson stood trial in Leeds Crown Court. He was charged with four counts of murder for killing Claire and Diane and Jim and Joan Britton. Nine months or so after the four murders, he pleads guilty to all four murders. Mercifully for the families of the victims, the twins' parents, and uh, the Britain's daughter, Hobson didn't submit them to the full detail of exactly 
what had happened to their loved ones. Paul Worsley QC was the prosecutor leading the case against Hobson. The case was very carefully prepared, as you would expect and hope, by North Yorkshire police. There was, when the trial came to take place, nowhere for Hobson to turn. Every avenue of defense had been blocked. Every piece of evidence which linked him to the killing of the two girls and of the Britons was in place there. A psychiatric report was also conducted at the time of the trial to try and make some sense of Hobson's motives. Hobson was examined by psychiatrists, obviously, to try and find some reason, some explanation for this appalling saga of killing for which he was responsible. But very surprisingly, none was found. And therefore, he was someone who was fully responsible for the killing of those four people. He appeared to be a runaway train, he appeared to be out of control, but he knew exactly what he was doing. He could have decided at any point to stop, but he chose to continue harming people. This was completely unnecessary. All the evidence indicated that Hobson knowingly committed the murders. I believe that Hobson admitted to all of the murders because he was advised, if you confess at the, the first opportunity, you're perhaps likely to receive a lighter sentence for that. So I think there's the self-interest going on here. He didn't suddenly develop a conscience overnight. He was trying to secure the best outcome for himself. But the judge, Mr. Justice Grigson, wasn't going to allow Hobson to get off that easy. He told Hobson in open court, the enormity of what you have done is beyond words. The damage you've done is incalculable. You not only destroyed the lives of your victims, but you devastated the lives of those who loved them. The judge now asks for guidance on sentencing to know what the parameters of sentencing can be. And this experienced judge well knew what they were likely to be. In respect of each of the murders, Hobson did receive a sentence of life imprisonment to run concurrently in respect of all four murders. On May 27, 2005, Mark Hobson was sentenced to life, ensuring that he would never be a free man again. Now, this set a complete legal precedent because nobody had ever been given a whole life order before when they'd actually confessed and they'd, they'd pled guilty to murder. Mrs. Sanderson, the mother, was there, as was the father, on hearing the sentence, and I'm sure it was one with which they agreed, because that's the heaviest sentence any court in this jurisdiction can impose, became very upset and told him to rot in hell. A few months into his prison sentence, Hobson's violent temper flared again. This time, he attacked a fellow inmate. When he was in prison, Hobson attacked Ian Huntley, the murderer of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman in Soham. He actually poured boiling water over Ian Huntley. Now, this wasn't done to avenge the harm that Huntley had done to his victims or his families. This was very much done to protect Hobson's own status within prison. You have to look back at the big picture. Here, here's a guy who we know primarily about him through his two bizarre homicides, the twin sisters. But we, but we know that, that violence lurks. The interesting thing is his violence is not limited to that context. We know from the killing of the older couple that when it's instrumentally necessary, he'll kill. But we know something else. He can be very violently. He, he stabs somebody in a public place through the lung, and he viciously physically assaulted somebody in jail. 
So this is a person who has intense, aggressive impulses being held in check at all times. The true motivation behind Mark Hobson's callous crimes, if there is one, remains a mystery. Over the course of a week, he took the lives of four innocent people, apparently just because he could. There was no reason known to the police for Hobson to do as he did. He took not just one, but four lives for no reason, no motive, no medical condition that had caused him to behave in this bizarre and appalling way. We all fancy ourselves being able to see the potential for evil or for tragedy by looking at somebody's life and seeing some indications of that possibility. What the Hobson case says frighteningly is that maybe anyone can be a killer. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those close to the case for sharing their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we would appreciate a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, in November 2003, a man pleaded guilty to 48 counts of aggravated murder. A year later, another body was found bringing his murder count to 49. He was a killing machine, a man of extraordinary evil. Despite police suspicions, it took 20 long years to bring the man to justice. I poked him with my finger in his chest. I says, you SOB, I know you did it, and we're going to get you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.